So um, in the middle of the night, or actually in the middle of the morning, uh, God woke me up, knowing I was going to stand up here and uh, introduce Sarah. A word that came from, uh, from Sarah's book, Jesus Feminist, woke me up, and I decided, I decided to write something. So um, one of the things that Sarah's books have taught me is to be brave. Um, and you guys might not know this, but I am actually not naturally a brave person. Um, this is something that God has been raising up in me. And so uh, I want to share this with you. And as I share it, what I want us to do is actually stand up, and uh, if you can, in body or in spirit. Um, and I'm just going to pray this like a prayer over us. So this is you know, what you'll hear, for those of you who have read Jesus Feminist, you will hear Sarah's voice in my voice. And so uh, what I've done is taken some of the things I found really powerful, themes and words and phrases uh, from Sarah's work, and just kind of tied them together in a way that is meaningful to me and I hope is meaningful to you. So this is actually a prayer for all of us. Um, and it's just a poem called Recompassed. So I'm just going to pray this over us. Let us be on the outside with the misfits and despised. Let us love those on the outskirts. Let us see with Jesus-trained eyes. Place us with the daylight dreamers. Stand with arms open wide. Radical grace redeemers. Those with holes in our sides. Unafraid of mess and mystery. Unashamed of life renewed. Unrehearsed in authenticity. Unabashed the spirit moved. Let us rest in worth God-given. Let us stop holding our breaths. Let us roar the spirit-driven words that cultivate new rest. Undo second-rate fillers for the hunger felt inside. Remove thrill from all false thrillers. Recompass us to your side. Let us partake in your breathtaking plan that undoes our hiding out, let us live your life-staking plan that transforms fear and doubt until we find the quiet places where our voices can be heard, speaking spirit-laden phrases echo your resurrected word. Lord, um, we thank you for Sarah. We thank you for what she will bring to us. And, uh, and we just thank you for, uh, for her heart. We thank you for her heart, for those on the outside, for justice, and for your, for your way. Um, we thank you for whatever it is she has for us tonight. Um, and so, um, in, in your name. <laughs> so, uh, so, Sarah um, has authored, uh, I mentioned Jesus Feminist, but also Out of Sorts, Making Peace with Evolving Faith. She is a writer and a blogger and a sometimes preacher. She describes herself as an unqualified theologian, but as you can hear from me um, as a qualified theologian, her theology has been incredibly meaningful to me personally. So, um, so I, would, I would question her, her own phrasing of unqualified. Um, she's married to Brian. They have four kids. Uh, she is a Western Canadian, which I'm going to say, woo, because that's where I'm from, too. Um, born, raised, forever. Okay. Um, I'm not, but she is. Yay. Um, and we are thankful to say that she attends Abbotsford Vineyard, so she's one of our family. So I am thankful for that. 
And uh, she has a heart for Jesus, a love of social justice, a love of books, all of which make me incredibly happy to be getting to know her and to get to listen to her tonight. So, Sarah, thank you so much. Oh, and I am supposed to give you a gift, so I'm going to give you that gift right now, and then we can awkwardly put it on the table while you talk. So, uh, blessings to you. That's, uh, that's our blanket for you, so. Okay. Thank you, Beth. Do some rearranging. Just give me a second, if you don't mind. No, not necessarily. I just don't want to knock anything over. I come from a Pentecostal background, and I need room. There we go. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we can just have that up. Yeah, you can leave that there. That's totally fine. But thank you. Guards. <laughs> oh, well, I'm just going to get up here and lord my womanness. <laughs> oh, that made my whole day. I was like, after that, I can just go home. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, well, here we are. I'm so happy to be here at last. Let me pray for us before we get started. Although we've actually been going for two hours, nobody's keeping count. (laughs) Fix it, Jesus. All right, ready? Jesus, you are everything to us. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would understand what it is that you are wanting to say to each of us tonight, and I pray that you would help me to get out of the way of what it is that you are longing to do. We love you, and we trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's get started here. I feel like I need to introduce myself just a wee bit. So, hi, I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you all. Um, I was uh, born in Regina, and uh, which is where my family actually came to know the Lord. Uh, I'm a first. My parents are first generation believers. Um, one of these days, if I had a little bit more time, I would tell you this: the most bizarre story about how our family ended up coming to the Lord. I'll just tell you this: it involved bullfrogs and butterflies. The album, and so. And then later on, uh, we moved to Winnipeg. I did uh, three years in Winnipeg. I say it like it's jail, but I don't mean it that way. Not one bit. I love Winnipeg. And then we moved to Calgary. And that is kind of what I've always considered hometown. You know, it's where I learned to drive and, um, you know, flipped a truck over on the Deerfoot. And (laughs) winter driving is just a blessing. And uh, where I graduated from high school as well. And so then I ended up moving to the States. Uh, My husband is American. And, um, well, well, that's good news. Usually it doesn't get a cheer in Canada these days. So that's encouraging. Bless you. Uh, And he's from Nebraska. My husband's uh, six foot six. They eat a lot of corn in Nebraska. And uh, we lived there for about eight years. My husband uh, was a pastor at a church down in Texas, actually. We lived there for a number of years. And then um, probably about 
12, 13, 14 years ago, we moved uh, back home. We moved, about this time we moved up to Vancouver. And so he went to seminary and we were living in Vancouver with, you know, no intention really of staying. But you know what, once you try yoga pants and Birkenstocks, you never really go back. And so we ended up staying on the West Coast and then we had too many children, so we had to move out to the Valley and now we're in Abbotsford. Vancouver's not made for families my size. Uh, So Brian and I have been married for almost 18 years. Uh, We've been together for 20. And uh, we have four children. So I used to call them the tinies. I don't get to call them that anymore because my eldest daughter is just about to turn 12. And she's five foot nine and was looking down on me the other day and told me to get my roots done. So children children are just a blessing. That's what they are. It's a disconcerting thing when the wee child that you feel like just, you know, you gave birth to yesterday is now calling you shorty. And so she's nearly 12, and then Joe is nearly 10, and then Evelyn is nearly 8, if you're keeping track. That's three babies in four years. And uh, laundry was pretty much what you could imagine. And then right about the time that they were starting to head into school, the Lord uh, just really turned things kind of upside down from what we had planned and, uh, and we welcomed home another new baby girl, and her name is, is Margaret. We call her Maggie. She calls herself Batmegs because she's super obsessed with Batman. Don't ask. You know how it is like when you have your first baby, and you're like, you will only eat organic food, and there's no such thing as television. And then by the time you hit your fourth child, you're like, here are your chicken nuggets and Dora. Have a nice day. And it's all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> So um, I'm a writer. I've written two books. As you heard uh, Beth say, my first one was called Jesus Feminist, um, which I don't know anybody else who's managed to tick off quite as many people in the church with one two-word title. So I win. That's good. It's just a, just a joy. You know, I, when I, it, it's a really interesting thing for me now to look back on that book a number of years later, because when I wrote it, um, there was no part of me that was really thinking about trying to create like this treatise on, um, you know, an academic view of Christian feminism. And anybody who's read it says, yes, we know. But for me, it was always and ever meant to be a glimpse of the kingdom of God, of what life looked like on the other side of so many of our missing the point gender debates about can you do this and should you do that and what's going on and what it would actually look like to be on the other side of those when you have said yes. When you have said yes to what it looks like for men and women to walk together in, a, in, a, in an alliance, walking together with God, what it means for your churches, your marriages, your children, uh, your neighborhoods, and for the world. And so then after that, I wrote a book called Out of Sorts, which is really kind of a bit of a a love letter for the people who are in the middle of deconstructing their faith. Um, I don't know if anybody here in this room has walked through that process, but I don't know that when people hit that stage or that moment in their um, spiritual formation, when they feel the need to begin to deconstruct and dismantle the edifices that we built for them often, I don't know that we shepherd that really well. And so for me, that was an attempt to leave the light on for the people who are wondering and wandering, mainly because I was one of them for a really long time. And so that actually is what led me to the vineyard. Because I had not gone to church for about seven years. 
to be honest, thought I never would. I thought I'd graduated from church. I was very mature. My husband was in seminary. It wasn't awkward at all. And it was an Easter Sunday, and he and I decided we should probably take the children to church for Easter so as to not be raising complete heathens. Also, my mother expected it. And so we just kind of spun a wheel, and I said, I cannot deal anymore with these structures. After, you know, a lot of years in ministry, him and I, I had kind of crashed out and was burned out and exhausted and brokenhearted. And a lot of times I felt like I couldn't go to church because I didn't necessarily feel that there was room for my grief there or that there was room for my questions there or room for me to be who my actual whole self was there that somehow I had to edit and present. And I said, that's fine. He was wanting a little bit more structure. I was wanting, you know, if we were doing anything, church in a pub. And we landed at the vineyard. And it was funny because I remember getting all of our, you know, we had three children at the time, and getting everybody loaded up and walking in the door and literally crying the entire way through. And I remember looking around at all these folding chairs in a school gym, which was how I had come to know Jesus 25 years before. And I remember looking around and thinking, I want to bring these crazy casseroles. I want to be part of their lives I felt like I'd found my people. And you ask Gary and Lisa Stevens, they're my pastors. Uh, They've not been able to get rid of me since. It's really quite a tragedy. And the further that we have, and the longer that we have journeyed with the vineyard, the more that we have found a home here, the more, I I used to say that um, just like I didn't really want to get married in the abstract like the abstract idea of marriage wasn't really super appealing to me, to be honest. But when I met my husband, Brian, I wanted to marry him. And you could not stop me from running down a church aisle in Tulsa in flip-flops as fast as I could to just to say yes to him. All I wanted was to marry him. And in a lot of ways, I felt that way about our church, where I felt I wasn't really sure about the whole rest of the institution and the way that things run and you know, the larger story, but I knew I loved these people. And I knew I wanted to pick them in a very particular sort of sense. And then the best thing about that, just like marriage, is that you don't just marry a person. You marry a whole life and community and family and history and background. And you guys came with the package, and I'm so glad. The more that I get to know you, the more I love you. The more, I mean, I've probably scared David a wee bit this week because I've been like, this is amazing, and I love them, and I'm never leaving. So it's not, it sounds less threatening in my head than it sounds when I say it out loud. But one of the things that ended up happening because I was involved in the local church, I never in a million years imagined myself as someone who was a preacher, or someone who had a role in public ministry or had anything necessarily to say. I didn't think preachers looked and sounded and acted like me. And yet it was because of my church identifying the gifts that God had given me, giving me space and room to practice them. And Gary can tell you there were some iffy practices. (laughs) And then with joy sending me out. So that now I see that that communal affirmation of gifts was just as valuable and important and necessary in my life 
and in the lives of all of the people I never could have imagined were waiting on the other side of that yes. And in a lot of ways, my calling leads me almost everywhere but the vineyard. I preach around the world with Methodists and Episcopalians and Anglicans and Baptists. I, one of my greatest joys is going into churches where they don't think women should preach. And they tell me, uh, we're going to make sure that we just call it sharing. One of my, it's one of my favorite things. Good morning, everybody. I'm here to preach to you this morning. And then I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> and so it has just been such a joy to be able to actually be home this week, to be with my people and with my tribe, with the people who uh, walk with me and, and we share a history, we share a story, we share a language, we share a way of, of understanding the world. And it's just been a joy for me to be here this week. Um, I'm trying to think if there's a few other things you should know. As I said, I grew up in uh, more charismatic churches that were, um, you know, small, happy, clappy, three people in a basement kind of stuff. You know, that's the fun thing about Western Canada and being charismatic is we can all play like six degrees of separation and two or less. And so probably a lot of you knew me back, at, you know, a lot of years ago, or maybe, maybe you knew, um, you know, some, we have some, some people in common here and there. Um, so I grew up in really small, charismatic, kind of sloppy, low church kind of stuff that I just love with my whole heart. And at the, I think probably you could best describe me right now as probably ecclesiastically promiscuous. I love everybody. I have gotten so much joy and teaching and training and life from traditions that are so different than my own. And if anything, I was surprised when I kind of landed back in charismatic, happily clappy churches where my children wave flags. I never would have expected that. And yet, look at the places where God will lead us and, and will, will carry us. Um, I did want to say really quickly before I kind of launch into an amazing sermon, if I do say so myself. It's good. It's really good. I wanted to say uh, quickly a really, a really quick thank you to Gary and Lisa Stevens, who are my pastors. I was joking about it earlier, but Gary and Lisa um, have loved my family. And one of the things that I find really deeply refreshing, especially given my line of work, um, is how much they care for and shepherd and pastor my family. Not just me, right? They're not just looking, I mean, and they do. They, they, have, they have gathered me and prayed for me and surrounded me with a community of people who have loved me very well, and I don't mean to diminish that, but it means a lot to me how much they see and pastor and shepherd my husband and my children and strengthen us as a family. It's a, it's a really big deal to us, and we're very grateful. And I also wanted to say thank you to David and Anita for inviting me and for having us here. I wanted to thank those of you who have journeyed with the vineyard for all of these years here in Canada. You created a space for a broken-hearted woman like myself to stumble into a gym and reimagine what community could look like. You gave church back to me, and I'm so grateful. And so I want to thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you for being stickers. I want to thank you for being people who do not quit. I want to thank you for being the ones who stay when it's hard, and the ones who are here when it is filled with joy and goodness and blessing too. Because your faithfulness is something that now is a harvest that I get to carry. And I'm so incredibly grateful for your faithfulness. And I could not even begin before stating that. So thank you.
All right, well, I think that this Holy Spirit must be up to something because almost every single person who has been up here at the mic has mentioned Luke 4. And Luke 4 is where I have been for the last two weeks as I have been praying and preparing and as I have been reimagining. So I'm going to start us off there. I did not give slides to anybody because I'm bad at things. (laughs) Just in general. (laughs) So you're going to have to open up your Bible app or, you know, if you brought your, your actual analog Bible with you, that would be fantastic too. So I'm over here in in Luke chapter 4, and I'll start off here. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The moment of that, of Jesus being in that room, having the scroll unrolling it, reading these words to a hushed and crowded room of people who think they know him, who think that they have him pegged, and having in that moment being able to read that and then announce it's today, that it's today, that this is the invitation and the inauguration, that all the rumors and all the hopes and all the dreams and all the things we've been planning for, it's actually now. It is today. It is fulfilled right now in your, in your hearing. In so many ways, as we have heard over this last few days, that this was Jesus' welcome to the revolution moment. But in a lot of ways, I tend to think about it also as welcome to reality. That this is our moment of actually waking up. And he proclaims right here in the middle of this crowded room of people who think that they know him. And he says that the kingdom of God is available to everyone starting right now, that it's completely fulfilled in their hearing. And I think that's the invitation that we always have, right? That's the invitation that's before us is to seek first the kingdom of God, not my own kingdom, not my own little jurisdiction and domain and place where I like to, you know, keep lists of who's good and who's not and who's behaving and who isn't and how I'm going to live my life and make sure I achieve all my big dreams in seven steps or less. Thank you very much. But instead, that this is God's dream. And it's God's dream that is coming true. That it is what God is doing not only in and around and through us, but even apart from us. And to us. And with us. Uh, There's a theologian a number of years ago when I very first began to kind of be introduced to what it meant to be part of the kingdom of God. Um, And it was probably about 15 years ago. Someone handed me a book by a theologian named Dallas Willard. 
And Dallas Willard wrote a lot about the kingdom of God, but one of the things that he said is that he used to say that the kingdom of God was the message of Jesus. That that's the message, that is the the good news that he embodied and he proclaimed and he manifested and taught and that he was always getting on with. That this is actually the message of Jesus, is what the kingdom of God is. And so this moment of inauguration into reality is really saying, welcome to what it's all about. Welcome to what it is you have been waiting for. Welcome to everything that is going to shape how you move through your life and how you move through time. How we move as a people and as a church and as a community. Because it's not someday and it's not far off. It's God's will as it's being done on earth as it is in heaven. So I wanted to stick a a pause right there. We're going to jump over to John chapter 20. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. I say that about every single one of them and I mean it every time. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. And over here in John chapter 20, we have just experienced Jesus' final discourse, his farewell discourse, his arrest, his torture, his trial, his crucifixion, and now he has been buried. And so it has been a bit of a week. And now a few days after his death and after his burial, I think it's here that we begin to see the ridiculous goodness of God and how this really begins to come together. And one of the things I love about this, especially as a feminist, is something that at a time, well, here, we'll get to all of this. I don't want to scare anybody with the F word yet. We'll get there. I'm so glad you're laughing. That joke did not go over well with the Baptists. (laughs) Uh, I was going to bless my own heart on that one. So in this chapter of John, he tells the story of Mary Magdalene. There's a poet named Kathleen Norris that I've really loved over the years. And uh, she wrote a poem about Mary Magdalene. And she talked about how she had, uh, she was the one who had seven demons. And she described it as seven de- she, Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, one for every day of the week, how practical and womanly. And so Mary Magdalene, of course, has been set free, and now she is a disciple, and she's a leader within the disciple group. And she is the one who is heading to the tomb on this morning. She's going to grieve and to mourn and to anoint his body, really probably just to be near him. And she gets there, and the tomb, the stone that is in front of it, has been rolled away. And she panics because it's empty. And she immediately runs back to the disciples, everybody else who's gathered. And she runs to them and says, the tomb is empty. He's not there. Somebody's taken him. There's, he's not there. And Peter and another disciple, they race back to the tomb with her, peek inside, see that, in fact, she was telling the truth. Thank you, gentlemen. You're a blessing. And they go back. They have verified the story, so that's good. Tick. But Mary stays. And she stays, and she is weeping as if her heart would break. It probably was breaking. And then she hears a voice from inside the tomb, and it's two angels, and they say, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken my master, 
and I don't know where they've taken him. If you know where he is, would you tell me, would you tell me where they've taken him? And then she turns away, and she hears another voice behind her. She thinks it's the gardener, that it's Jesus. But she senses someone behind her, and he says, Woman, why are you weeping? And she says, They have taken my master. And I don't know where he is. If you know where they have taken him, would you tell me? And I could go to him. And the scripture tells us that Jesus said one thing. He said her name. He said, Mary. And she looks up. and She sees that it's him. And the very next thing it says in John chapter 20 is Jesus saying, don't cling to me. And there are a lot of people who are much smarter than me and much more highly educated who have written all sorts of interesting and wonderful things about the ascension and, you know, the incarnation and Jesus not being, you know, fully into his kingdom yet, blah, blah, blah. They're all right and wise and wonderful and you should pay them millions of dollars. But a big part of me honestly believes she just launched herself at him. That there's this sense of laughter to it for me of, you know, like when, when you come home from a trip and your kids are really little and you walk in the door and they launch themselves at you and you end up being like, am I being hugged or strangled? It's hard to tell. And it feels just a, a little bit like that. There's this sense of joy of like, don't cling to me so hard. Don't hug me so hard. Because she probably just launched herself at him. And I love this moment. And because this is, to me, an an important thing for us to call out, is that it was such a cultural liability for a woman to be there. I mean, we're talking about a time when a woman's word was not even accepted in a court of law as evidence. And in some places, that still stands. But instead, not only is there a woman there at the tomb... It is Mary Magdalene who's commissioned to first preach the resurrection. Because then he tells her to go and tell the disciples that he's risen. And she races back to them, proclaiming the good news and preaching the resurrection. This is the reason why the early church used to call her the apostle to the apostles. I love that. The apostle to the apostles. And she is the first one preaching and proclaiming the resurrection, prophesying. She's saying, this is proclaiming of everything I have seen. And oftentimes that's really all that our preaching or our lives or our proclamations are, is we're saying everything we have seen. I've seen him. And he's alive. I've seen him and he touched me. I've seen him and he said my name. And oftentimes when I think about the kingdom of God, I think about this moment in the garden or pardon me, this moment at the tomb when Jesus spoke Mary's name. Because it seems incredibly significant to me, and I wonder sometimes if that's the moment when she recognizes him is when he says her name. It's not just when she hears his voice. It's when she hears him say her name, the way she had heard him say it so many times before. And so some part of me has always wondered if when we fully enter into the kingdom of God, if that's really what it is, it's that we recognize him. It's that we recognize him. There's this sense of homecoming about the kingdom of God that I think we forget sometimes. We act like it's a faraway place we travel to instead of realizing this is what we were born for. 
that it is the name we are being called and we recognize it. That some part of us has always known that there was goodness and joy and justice and love and redemption and forgiveness and all these great, big, beautiful nouns and verbs that make up a life worth living. We have known in our heart of hearts that this is actually what we were made for, that this is who we actually are. And it feels like a homecoming because in a lot of ways, it is. All right, then. I am so glad to hear that. I love when people talk. That's good news. I think that maybe oftentimes that's what we are really feeling in our heart of hearts is homesickness. That we're actually homesick for the kingdom of God. And a lot of the people who are around us and a lot of people in the world, the reason why that dissatisfaction and that restlessness and that loneliness and that disenfranchisement, why all of those things are feeling and teeming and bubbling underneath the surface of everyone's hearts and minds is because we are homesick and we are longing for Jesus. And so really when we encounter Jesus, however that may look for all of us, whether you were teeny tiny or you were, you know, it was last week, I think that some part of us locks into focus the way that Mary did that moment in the tomb of saying, I'm longing for something, I'm looking for something, I'm wanting something, and then you hear your name. And then you recognize. And I think that there is something there. Because that's what we've always been longing for all along. And we see that going back over to Luke chapter 4. I think that's part of the reason why there is such a hush in the room. is not just the authority and the goodness with which Jesus communicates But it's also this sense of, this is what we want. We want the ones who are captive to be set free. We want the ones who have been mourning to have joy. We are longing for the ones who are covered in ashes to have beauty for this. We are longing for the oppressed to be the ones who are actually set free. That we want the ones who are blind to open their eyes and see what is going on. That this is what we have always been longing for. We've been proclaiming and building this kingdom. That the establishment of the new city is what's actually happening in and among and around us right now. And this is the best part. Being part of the church, bride of Christ, we might be a hot mess in a wedding dress, but we're in on it. And we get to be a part of what this actually is. And this is one of my favorite things about Jesus. I say this every time and I mean it every time. One of my favorite things about Jesus is that he meant it. That he doesn't just talk a big game. That he actually gets on with it then. He doesn't just stop in Luke chapter 4 and be like, that was a great sermon. Everybody have a nice time. Pass the collection plate. But instead, this is an inauguration. This is the beginning of the reign. This is when the revolution happens. Now we live within this reality. And it was go time. And so everything that we see about Jesus is him getting on with it, casting out uh, demons and, and, and being with the sick and the sinful and the sinned against. They all found in him this friend and a healer and resurrection and goodness and rescue. And then here's the craziest thing, is that then he promises that we, the church, his disciples, will do even greater things, move even further in. One of my favorite passages of Scripture It's over in Acts chapter 2. Of course it is. I come from a Pentecostal background. I'm always going to say it's Acts chapter 2. So this is just a a little ways after Mary has had this encounter with Jesus. 
We've now had 50 days of Jesus being with the disciples, and then he has just been caught up into heaven. It's called the ascension. So, farewell discourse. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is arrested. There's a trial. There's torture. He's killed. He's buried. Surprise. He rises again. Then we have 50 days of him traveling and moving and being with the disciples, and then he gets caught up. And I think that the disciples go to the upper room to just take a minute, just to catch their breath. It has been a bit of a ride. And they are there, and they are praying, and they are pondering. And it's so in that moment that we turn over to Acts chapter 2. It's in verse 1, and it says, Without warning, I get chills every time, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. And it filled the whole building. And then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. They pour out of the room, down into the streets. They are preaching and proclaiming and speaking in tongues and and translating it. People cannot believe Galileans who are uneducated and ignorant and certainly not part of the special people in the ivory tower telling us all what to think and pray and do and give, that these people are the ones who are preaching with such authority and anointing and clarity and wisdom and in different languages too, right in the middle of the streets. And so, you know what, to be fair, some people think they're drunk. And most people are completely amazed. And then Peter, Peter, I love Peter so much. Peter stands up, preaches a sermon that ends up with 3,000 people being added to the church that day. But in the middle of that sermon, he throws all the way back to the prophet Joel. And he grabs something from the prophet Joel, brings it up into that sermon, and he declares the same thing that the prophet Joel did and says, it's in this moment because in these last days, God says, this is God speaking, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy, your daughters also. Your young will see visions, your old will dream dreams. When the time comes, I will pour out my spirit on those who serve me, men and women both, and they will prophesy. And what is it that we are prophesying? Because to me, this is the very next question that I always want to ask. What is it that we are prophesying? Because, you know what, I've... I mean, anybody, any of us who lived through the evangelical church in the 80s knows that we're not necessarily dying for another booklet about 24 reasons why Jesus is coming back on July 24th, which is today, by the way, Jesus, if you're listening. What we are actually prophesying to is God's new world. What we are prophesying to is everything from Luke 4, cast it, which casts back to the scroll that Jesus was actually reading, which was Isaiah 61. All of these things, this is the world that we are prophesying to, the whole new reality, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, that our whole lives, we are not wishing and hoping for the kingdom of God, but instead we now live within this reality. And this is one of the best reasons, one of the best things I think that sets apart peacekeepers from peacemakers. I mean, and we're Canadian. We're very good at peacekeeping. But there's a big difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And that's where this place is. So what I wanted to offer you this evening, as we're all gathered here together, and as now we'll be, of course, sent back out to all of our corners, the thing that I wanted to offer you were two questions, which is, 
very different than the churches I grew up in. Usually it was like 17 points and then we hit the tithe. So we got only two questions, so we can stick, we can stick with that. So the very first question I want for you, you can write it down in your, in your bulletin or in your notes app or whatever else. I'm a pen and paper girl myself. I want you to ask this question. What is God's dream? What is God's dream? This is one of the reasons why I love getting to know and walk with Jesus. is because in so many ways we begin to get the answer to this question. Don't we? What is God's dream? And in so many ways Jesus shows us the ways that we have missed it that we have mischaracterized God, that we have misunderstood and misrepresented God, the ways that we have sought to establish our own dreams and our own kingdoms and somehow thought that Jesus would bless this. And maybe the culture will. But here is the place where we land. What is God's dream? And I think that knowing Jesus is the best kick to your soul's imagination for this question. Walking with and knowing who Jesus is. His life and ministry and teaching will give you a glimpse of what the kingdom of God actually begins to look like. What God's dream is in the world. Because then we go back over to Luke chapter 4, which is one of my favorites. And we open up the scroll that Jesus was reading from, which is over in Isaiah 61. And if you look at the entirety of it, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up your brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's Jubilee, Drew. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, and a display of his splendor. One thing that uh, an American evangelist named Jonathan Edwards said is that the task of every generation is to find in which direction God is moving and then move in that direction. And that is really the task of our generation, is to discern in which direction Jesus is moving. And you know what? It's not a mystery. This is the best part. We know exactly in which direction Jesus is running. We read Isaiah 61, and we see exactly the places where Jesus is running. But we ask ourselves, and I think sometimes we can get so camped out on what previous generations did or how God moved back then or whatever happened, and we end up mistaking nostalgia for holy longing. And instead, I think that what God is wanting to birth in us this week and in the church as a whole is a holiness of vision and a longing for where the Redeemer is moving now. Because we can keep chasing the old paths, And you'll probably find some life and some goodness there. And we can honor what came before. Absolutely we can. But God makes a way where there is no way. It's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. 
I think that sometimes our imaginations have grown too tame. Our imaginations have grown too pragmatic. Our imaginations have sought to be less baptized and more manageable. And I think one of the things that I would ask you to do before you actually begin to journal and pray and seek God and talk with your community and wrestle with scripture, as you begin to imagine and re-ask yourself, what is God's dream? To actually ask the Holy Spirit for a baptized imagination. For a way to begin to imagine what this might actually look like. Not what is my dream, but what is God's dream? And what would it look like then for us to prophetically live like Acts Acts chapter 2? Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your old will dream dreams, and so will your young. Boys and girls, everybody's in. What would it look like then for us as a church and as a movement and as people of the kingdom to prophetically live into that reality? To begin to live into the reality of God's dream in our churches, in our homes, in our marriages, in your everyday sort of walking around life as you go to your job and you go to school pickups. Where is God moving? How is God already at work? And how do I get to get in on that? And you know what? It is a scary thing. And it is a life-changing thing. And a paradigm-shifting thing to honestly ask ourselves, where is God moving? When I begin to read through, what does the kingdom of God look like? And I turn over to Isaiah 61. And then I think about Mary being commissioned to go and preach. First preacher of the resurrection, not the only one. You're not off the hook. And then we head over to Acts chapter 2 again. Because here's the thing. I think that God is calling us further and further out into the wild and fresh air right now. One thing, a theologian I've really appreciated, her name is Carolyn Custis James, and she asks, is Jesus' gospel the way that we are preaching it? Simply a kinder and gentler version of the world's way of doing things. Or, I think the question is, is it going to take us to a completely different and long-forgotten way of being in the world? Are we just trying to be a Jesus-y version of what's going on in good people in the culture? Or are we beginning to understand the revolution and the revelation and the reality of Isaiah 61? Of the Sermon on the Mount, of the Beatitudes, all the places where we see Jesus taking it and turning it upside down. It's a kingdom of the anti-kingdom, right? Same thing Drew said earlier today. Which, by the way, is an amazing sermon. I took quite a lot of notes. I think that the dream that Isaiah had here is really a good answer, or a good starting place for us anyway, for what God's dream is. That there'd be swords into plowshares, that there would be farming instead of fighting, that there would be fertilization and cooperation instead of weaponization. As a disciple of Jesus, I hope that we are all being able to plant those small seeds of hope that grow into those mighty oaks of righteousness. 
Because I find that the, the true and really long-lasting work of the gospel really happens when we take time to walk with each other on this journey. Sarah Miles always says that, I, you know, it's a disappointing thing when you find out you don't get to be a Christian by yourself. I found it very disappointing. But you don't get to be a Christian by yourself, do you? The very nature of what we do is communal. The very nature of what we do, how we read scripture, how we worship, how we walk in the way, how we follow Jesus, by its very nature, we're going to be together. And a big part of it means then that we take time to walk with each other in this journey. I have needed men and women, particularly men and women who speak differently than me or understand things differently than me or have a different lived experience than I do. Because you know what? I love Jesus better when I hear how you love Jesus. And I get to know different parts of who Jesus is and how amazing and good and upside down and glorious the kingdom of God is when I am not only hearing my own head. And I get to hear how you are encountering Jesus, how you are experiencing Jesus, where you are seeing God moving. So I want you to ask yourself, what is God's dream? And to begin to imagine. Just begin to imagine. Second question. What is God, the first question is, what is God's dream? Then the second question I would ask you is, what if we began to practice that? Not achieve it, not accomplish it. There's an old Christian word that we used to use for spiritual formation called practicing. The practices of the presence of God. And in a lot of ways, I think that the kingdom of God is a great place for us to practice it's a great place for us to learn. And I really do think that beginning to ask ourselves, what is God's dream? What would it look like if I got in on that? What would it look like if I stopped making excuses and waiting for someone to give me permission or waiting to tick all the boxes I have somehow in my head before people are allowed to talk about Jesus or hedging my bets or typing about it on Facebook? What would it look like if I actually began to practice it, to embody it, to live it in my actual incarnated physical body, in my life? What would that begin to look like? You know, I wish more of us were really curious about God's dream and responding to the invitation of that because it disrupts everything. It disrupts your opinions and your bank account and how your friendships and your opinions and your values and your politics in almost every way. It's very disruptive. And here's something to say, too, especially because I know a lot of you in this room are practicing it and are on that path and are walking in that way and are the ones that a lot of us are looking towards. Or if you're at the beginning of an embarking point, especially, I think, this is an important word, for people who are not usually celebrated as leaders. The people who maybe it is harder for us to put our hand up and lead. The ones who are, it's harder for us. Because either the deck is stacked or you don't look the way that everybody else thinks you should. Or your story or your background or for whatever reason. And there will be those who will misunderstand the dream of God. And I want to tell you, get on with it.
that it's time to get on with it, church. That there will be a lot of people who will judge you and find your efforts wanting, and you get on with it anyway. That there will be people who think you are doing it wrong. You get on with it. There will be those who will hold you up as a warning. That's a fun one for me. I love being a warning. There will be people who misunderstand you and mischaracterize you on purpose sometimes. There will be those who say you have absolutely no business saying it or doing it. And there will be those who believe you are outside the boundaries. There will be those who are certain that you are too much. This is a fun one for women. Now you're just too much. But you get on with it anyway, sister. There will be people who question your faith and your credentials, your rights and your voice and your doctrine, your way of understanding the atonement, your methods, your manners, your size. That's a fun one for me. I get often. Your methods, your ways of being, your history, your background, your socioeconomic stuff, your translation of the Bible even. You get on with it. Those things do not change God's dream, and they do not change the practice of that dream. And so we get on with the work of the kingdom of God. Not in hubris, not in pride, not in a lack of humility, not in a sense of I'm right, everybody else is wrong. But in a sense of being deeply anchored. And knowing that you are doing the work of the gospel, that you are rising with love. That you are speaking up and you are speaking out on these things. That you are getting on with setting more places at tables that have been too small for too long. That you are throwing open doors that used to be closed. That you are keeping an eye out for who is missing from this room. That these are the things that we are paying attention to, not only who is beside us, but who is being ahead of us and who is coming up behind us. That these are the things that we are keeping an eye on, that we are getting on with opening up the doors a bit wider and blowing the roof off with praise and flooding into the streets, that we are getting on with praying for miracles and guess what? Working for them too. You get on with reading widely and listening and learning and having your toes stepped on. Get on with all those new paths and unexpected wilderness. And I want you to get on with the people who laugh and cry easily. And proclaim freedom and welcome. You get on with making a home and a place and a space where the ones who are homeless and dispossessed and lonely find a home. That you get on with all of these things. That you are getting on with giving away your money and sharing your goods and making plans for goodness. You're getting on with feeding the hungry and offering water to the parched and getting on with the work, really, of liberation and love. That you're getting on with paying attention and staying awake and being watchful. You know, I hope that you get on with making a nuisance of yourself to the powerful. That's a fun one. you organize and you protest and you make speeches on Facebook. I love your Facebook speeches. Because what we're really doing is getting on with declaring that this is the year of the Lord and we are not going to stop declaring that and proclaiming that and preaching that 
until there are beauty for ashes and joy for mourning and the captives are set free and the oppressed are running and there's mighty oaks of righteousness that are flourishing right for the healing of the nations. But that's what we're actually moving towards and disrupting for and making trouble for. And even for some of us, we need to get on with pursuing our own healing and wholeness so we can give a glimpse of the abundant life that we have discovered in God. So you know what? Go see your therapist. All we are called to do in this moment is really live within that reality that there's still an invitation, church. But this is our invitation, is to begin to practice and live within the new reality. God is always offering us more reality, restoring all things, resurrecting all things, rescuing all things, renewing everything. That's just the thing that we are working towards without stopping. What does the renewal of all things look like? Because we're prophesying to God's reality with our whole lives. Your whole walking around life. Not just your singing Jesus' songs at camp life. Your going to work life. Your going to school life. Your traffic life. Your walking down the street and seeing people life. Your family. Your extended friends. Your neighborhood These are all our regular walking around lives where we are proclaiming and prophesying about God's new world and about the reality of what this looks like. And because here's the thing, the world is crying out for this kind of jubilee church, longing for it. Whether we are in the developed world or the developing world or caught somewhere probably in between, often even within our own neighborhoods, we see these structures. Here's a great Pentecostal raise for you. Powers and principalities. I love that one from Paul. Because, and I love the phrase powers and principalities in this conversation because I don't really know what other words to use when we are talking about wanting to dismantle things like racism and sexism and bigotry and xenophobia and homophobia and greed and poverty and war. We are talking about powers and principalities that will not be torn down without the work of God. That we are not warring against flesh and blood. That we are warring in the spirit. And these are the things that we are dismantling. One theologian I love talks about how we have these structures, these signs of the old reality, this old way of being, these, these ways of understanding things. And in the teeth of these structures, right in the teeth of the powers and principalities that seek to dehumanize and destroy and ruin and steal and kill, that in the teeth of those structures, we are called to erect signs of God's new world. We're not the ones running away. We are the ones in the teeth of those powers and principalities erecting and establishing signs of God's new world. And that's us. That's our life. That's our way we move through the world in the kingdom of God. We are always demonstrating the redemptive power of Jesus. That we were first loved and now we love. This is not about a hustle. It's not about trying harder or performing. I have zero interest in this. It is your reality. And that is the overflow. We are not talking about behavior modification. We are talking about transformation. That we have been transformed. And we move through a world that is being transformed and in a reality that is transformative. Your whole life prophesies. Your whole life prophesies to what you know and understand. You know, I love 
uh, Krista, the contemplative spaces that you have set up all around the room. They're just incredible. I don't know where Krista is. It's a bit bright, so I can't see her. But the one over here really caught my imagination earlier this afternoon. And, uh, and I thought it was interesting that she brought it up then as well this evening. Because I had written down some things about how I would begin to imagine and reimagine that the kingdom of God is like. And there's that imagination, right? The kingdom of God is like. A pearl of great price. That it is yeast and homemade bread that it rises only after you've thumped it. For a good while. That it is a lost coin. That it's a treasure in a field that you would sell everything to possess. You would turn your life upside down, your home, your comfort, the sand where you stick your head, the last word that you like to take in an argument, your right answers, your safe and predictable nice little life that you have entirely centered in avoiding any inconvenience. All those things get to be sold because there's a treasure in a field. And it is a strong tower and a refuge. That this is a kingdom of inversions. What does it look like? It looks like the last being first. It looks like the ones who are chasing after honor at the head table. Being the ones who are often missing that Jesus is sitting at the lowest table. In the kingdom... I begin to imagine and say, the kingdom of God is like both the child and our elders being honored. I'm not really interested in putting anybody out to pastor when they turn 60. I'm looking for us to be a place where both are honored, the child and the elders among us, which is good news for you, David. Love you. It is a gorgeous and crazy and good and noisy family that talks too loud and loves you the most at your weakest moment. And it's provision and it's welcome and it's enough. It is beginning to reimagine the fact that the welcome And the goodness of God is bigger and wilder and more generous and more inclusive and more whole than we could have possibly imagined. And you are in on it. That it's for you. It's actually for you. And you are part of that welcome. That it's an about face to the world's way of being and the world's way of seeing things. That it is the eyes that see and the ears that hear and the hearts that would understand. That it's not only those big mountaintop moments of inspiration and clarity and goodness, but it is also recognizing that sometimes the most transformative encounters that you are going to have with the Holy Spirit is in the valleys of your life. That oftentimes the wilderness is where your intimacy with God is actually born and cultivated. I have begun to find that the kingdom of God sounds very different to me than it used to. To me, it sounds like a First Nations drum. It sounds like reconciliation. It sounds like all of us who are descended perhaps from settlers or from colonizers beginning to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and paying attention to the calls to the church. Because that's our work. 
that the kingdom of God looks like people who are awake and who are paying attention. To me, it looks like us realizing that the ones we've continued to call voiceless have actually been speaking all along. We just weren't listening. To me, the kingdom of God looks like the tired receiving new strength and joy. That there's no such thing as an outsider. And that to me, it's, it's every, every sin that has been committed or thought in word or deed that is forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west. And it's every evil and terrible moment of our life somehow being redeemed. And it is restoring beauty to our nights instead of these remembrances of terror to the darkness. I think there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. Instead, it'll be this shocking, hallelujah, at last kind of party that is good and whole. The cast-offs of our world, the ones whom our culture likes to disdain and devastate and discard and disappoint, that they're the ones leading the singing and the dancing. A part of our worship will always be wiping away tears from every face. And it's messages of joy and open gates and loud music and quiet moments and welcoming home that is a rich harvest and it is a world that we are beginning to prophesy to with our lives. And so even if you don't get a chance tonight to begin to imagine what the kingdom of God is like, make room for it. Ask yourself these two questions. What is God's dream? And what would it look like if we began to practice that together? So let me pray for you this evening before we head over to the forum. Look at me, I'm even done on time. It's a Christmas miracle. All right, so let me pray for you. I know, you know what, here's the thing. I know the way that I pray may not be the way that you pray. I know that this is a space where there's room for that. And so I am grateful for that, and I'm grateful for the room that you guys make for me. Because Jesus, Spirit, here we are. We just want to be with you, walking in your ways, always, wherever you lead us. That we would pay attention and discern where it is you are moving in our generation. And we would move with you. That we would follow you in the paths in the wilderness. Holy Spirit, we want you to sweep into our opinions and our preferences and our nostalgia with a fresh wind. And I pray that you would fill my friends here in this room, my brothers and my sisters, Jesus. That you would fill them with a peace that passes all understanding. That they would be, we would all be drawn into community with one another that is so rich and so deep and so diverse that we would disagree and fight and love each other anyway. That we would embody what it is that what we do when we are disappointed with one another. That you would make us a community that can embody what it means to have unity without conformity. I pray that we would bring 
coffee and prayer and laughter and tears and words of knowledge and goodness to one another. I pray that we would all get our toes stepped on, that we would get our feelings hurt, and that we would know what it is to forgive. I pray that we would be given the gift that each of us were wrong about some important things ourselves, and that we would then be quick to seek forgiveness and make it right when we figure out that we were the one who was wrong. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you would give us the guts to follow where it is that you are leading us. I pray for freedom to reign. I pray for us to be a community of grace that is going from coast to coast to coast. That our cities and our provinces and our towns would be blessed because of our presence. That they would begin to get a glimpse of the overwhelming goodness of the kingdom of God. That in the moments when they are feeling homesick, we would be a light saying, this is home, head this way. And so I pray that our lives would become outposts, these holy signs along the path, giving a lost world just a glimpse of the abundant life that we have found in you, Jesus. May we begin with our own life-giving lives. So would you set us free? Would you heal us? Would you open up the path before us? Would you fill us so that we are able to pour out? And so I pray for messy living rooms. And for late nights. Jesus, I pray for dirty dishes on our counters. And I pray that we would all be given a faithful handful of friends and family to call when the darkness presses in close to us. And I pray that we would be a people who are quick to show up at the right time for one another. Paying attention to the moments when we say we need to check in. I need to do a check with you. How are you? That we wouldn't just skate by those moments of invitation. And I pray that the next chapter in this story that you are writing for us here in Canada, that we would see the kingdom of heaven break through in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our churches in ways that we had never seen before, in ways that embody Isaiah 61 in ways that embody Luke 4, in ways that embody the church of Acts. And in so many ways, Jesus, we are listening. And so I pray that we would continue to embody the truth that you did not save us and set us free and rescue and redeem us just to use us like tools that we aren't here to earn our way. We're not pew fodder or cog in the machine or ones who are just really good at trying harder and better than everybody else. Thank you that you are, you tipped your hand right there in Isaiah with the name Emmanuel. You are God with us. God with us. You are with us. So thank you for delighting in us. All of our quirks and our history and our goodness and our hopes and our dreams and our victories and our struggles and our brokenness and our healings. Jesus, I have never gotten over when you called us friends. Not servants. Not an army. Not minions. Just your, your friends. And so I pray that we would start there in the audacity of our friendship with you. 
that we would know personally and intimately, deep in the marrow of our bones, that we are loved. That there is no fear in love. That we have been made perfect in your love. That we love only because you loved us first. And so we're free. I pray that you would help us to move from wanting to change the world to wanting to prophesy and proclaim and embody. I pray that we would move towards wanting you. Jesus, we want you in your intimate God with us, upside down, anti-kingdom ways. We want you. And I pray that we would remember that our whole lives are a proclamation, Jesus, that you are the why and the how of our awakening, that you are why we are rising, why we are able to keep getting on with it, because you are not only, you are beautiful to us. And so I pray that we would proclaim the kingdom of God, your wild, countercultural, upside-down, beautiful kingdom ways with our hands and with our feet and our voices to every soul that is within our care and our influence. I pray that we would be a church who would long for prayer and for the scriptures and for our communities, that, Jesus, we would be a people who know what it is to keep secrets and give away our money and share our meals and make room at whatever table we find ourselves at, and that we also know what it is to sit alone at night in silence under the sky and be satisfied. I pray that we would be a people who can hold babies and honor our elders and comfort the dying. Be a voice. May we be a voice of knowledge that is tempered with wisdom and wilderness. May we be the ones who do not despise our days of small things. But instead, Jesus, may we find that you have always been hiding in plain sight in beautiful obscurity. And so I pray that no matter what our, t- our tool or our method or our season of life is, so many different callings and vocations and moments and histories all represented and brought into this room, Jesus, we honor them. And so whatever tool or method or vocation or season of life that we are in, whether it is preaching or parenting or cooking or writing or business or whatever it is, most of our whole lives encompass all of it anyways, that we would walk in the knowledge of the sacredness and purpose of our callings. I pray for dreams and for visions. I pray for the active and intimate leading of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would never forget that we are loved, that love is our identity, our calling card, our home, and the floor upon which we stand and the air that we are breathing. That your love is what is sustaining and pulling us. I pray that we would be a church of perseverance and discipline. I pray that we would have speech that is seasoned with salt. And I pray that when we are bored and tired and disappointed and discouraged and frustrated, when we feel futile and small and maybe even a bit ridiculous, that we would remember your kingdom, your ways, your way of seeing things, your dream, and that we would sink down into that and find new joy and new strength and new vision, new boldness, new courage, new faith, and a new path. I pray that we would have the courage to turn around and face our lives. As they stand right now, whether we 
we would be able to turn around and look it in the eye because this, this is it. This is our life. This is our generation. This is our moment. This is our time. And we would be able to look it in the eye because whether we find ourselves in a boardroom or a hospital or a back alley or in a kitchen filled with jelly-faced toddlers, that we would know the truth that we are a people of the kingdom, that we are a people of love, that we are by love and for love and through love and in love and called love and prophesying your good love. And I pray that we would keep our eyes open for signs of your presence. You are always up to something. You are always up to something. Give us eyes to see it. Thank you for letting us walk with you. Thank you for the joy of walking with you. We love our reality. We love the revolution. Thank you for commissioning us and calling us and sending us out into the world to proclaim that you are risen and the kingdom of God is now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.